This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Castle We Called Home, Our Living, Breathing, and Emerging with Autism. And the author is Simone Brenneman. And Simone joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Simone. Hi. I want to read a few things you've written about your book. Uh, it's obviously focused on autism. You have two autistic children you say changed your life dramatically. It turned it upside down and it twisted about in every possible direction. There were times when I was pushed in ways and on levels that no parent should ever be pushed because for so long, life was so stressful and complex. Much was truly fascinating, as I did live very much submerged in autism 24-7. Well, I think most of us have a hard time relating to what you've been through. That's probably true. <laughs> That's definitely been my experience. <laughs> definitely. And, and, of course, as any parent, as any mother, you love your kids. You do just about anything for them. You do, absolutely. And, you know, at the, at the darkest moments, you look in your child's eyes and you just think, no, they deserve more and we deserve more. And you just find ways to make that happen. So why publish this book uh, about Hayden and you have another book about your daughter? Why did you do this? The main reason was they're both, they're so fascinating and they're so precious and their challenges were so enormous. And yet, I honestly feel as much as I learned from, or that I taught them, I learned from them. Um, they have so much to offer us. And I think it's been such a complex journey, not only having one, but having two. And there were just so many times when I just thought, you know, there has to be a reason for one family to have so much thrown at them. We need to turn this around and, um, show people what it is that we've been able to learn. There are so many people, you know, who are challenged by autism and they need hopeful stories, but they also need very true and real stories. And so I, I just figured, you know, you just, anything that um, could be of help to someone I'm willing to give, you know, the positive stuff, the tough stuff, some of it, the, the heart-wrenching stuff, but also just the amazing and most beautiful things. And that was what just compelled me to do this. Um, both of my children are amazing, and they deserve to have their stories told. Now, there have been times when you doubted that you could deal with all this, that you could cope with it. There definitely were. Um, not a lot of times, I think, because just my own life history and being able to, you know, always find something good in something. Um, but, yeah, there were times where, you know, the, the bizarre, the behaviors can be just so bizarre, so stressful, you know, year after year. And, and times where you just think, have we come as far as, as we can and, and this isn't far enough. But, you know, fortunately, there was always something to reach for or, um, like I said, I would just, I would look at my children and I would just push everything away and just go, no, there has to be another door. We have to figure something out. And always, that a door opened, always. Tell us about the research. How many children are out there with autism? 
Well, at this point, being diagnosed now, it's considered to be one in every 140. Some studies say maybe as many as one in every 110. So, you know, that's a a pretty high amount when you think of in any given school. That's a substantial number of children. When did you know that Hayden was autistic? Well, I think I knew when when his, his sister was diagnosed. You know, she was about four, and at that time he was about two, and we were experiencing lots of unusual behaviors in, in him, and I knew as, as soon as she was diagnosed, and I just thought, yeah, it's the same with him as well. But I, I felt that he was actually um, much, much more pervasively affected than she was. Now, I know that this is a very broad question, but what is the best way to help a family dealing with autism? Well, it depends on if you're saying, you know, how do you be supportive to them? Um, you know, if, if you're talking about the, the average person who has, a, say, a family member with a child being diagnosed, what I would say is be interested and be caring. The, the, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, I know what you mean. Oh, yeah, you know, we all have days like that. You don't want to do that because the reality is you don't. You really don't have a clue. But, you know, let yourself be fascinated by their child. Let them feel that you love their child and that you, you think they're amazing. And, and then do take that time to just step back and look through their eyes, look through the eyes of the family. And then it, it becomes pretty easy to support them. You know, you want it to be genuine. Always, to me, it's fascination. Just let yourself be fascinated. And that's why you say only good comes from embracing autism? That's one of the reasons. The other reason that I say that is, um, to me, it's it's the most amazing, beautiful irony that someone who has autism, they, they do not understand social cues the way that we do. They don't instinctively make eye contact, things like that. And yet they know when someone is accepting of them. They may not actually look at you, but they will look at you at the corner of their eye or whatever. And even my son, who is much more challenged than my daughter, you know, and, and, and a couple of very profoundly autistic children that I've worked with, they do get when people accept them or have a comfort level. And when they feel that comfort level, a lot of the work is done right there. You know, they then... Um, feel more relaxed, and a lot of their symptoms lessen or disappear, and then it's much easier to connect. There's just, there's no reason to approach this without acceptance, in my point of view. To me, it's it's never been about we have to, you know, cure them or make them recover or whatever. A lot of it starts with just accepting who they are, and then t- saying, okay, now what do we do to just keep furthering, helping them to emerge? So, what is the stigma attached to the word autism? I personally don't get it, but it's out there. I think so many parents in particular, you know, they don't want to have the A word used. They don't want to say, my child is autistic. That's labeling my child. And I I do understand that that to a certain extent. You know, you don't want to know a child just because they have autism, right? But at the same time, to me, it's not a label. It's an explanation. When you're, you know, you're in a mall and you see a child that's acting out and he's screaming or, you know, running up and down the aisles because he's a child with autism and he's overwhelmed and overloaded, if if people knew the word autism and, and if, you know, this parent could just say, I'm sorry, my child has autism, we're just having a bit of a rough time, what we want to do is just educate people so they say, oh, okay, you know, and maybe is there something I can do to help or maybe I'll just back off and let this woman deal with this. 
it's all a matter of acceptance. I, I don't really understand why people are so hesitant to say uh, um, autist, that their child is autistic. You know, if my child was blind, you know, that's something more readily that people would say, well, you know, he's blind and whatever. But a lot of people just, um, I think there's, there's so much lack of knowledge about autism, and so people are still a little bit kind of scared by it. If you were asked for four keys, just four, that led to your family's success, what would they be? Um, absolutely um, accepting it, not being afraid to use the word autism, um, really getting inside not only their minds but their bodies, you know, seeing the world as they do. And, you know, this one will be a little bit confusing if, you know, you don't really understand autism. It's one of the things I really try to promote is understanding how associations affect them. You know, a, a particular experience when they're a child may come back and haunt them later or how they experience things when they walk into a room or whatever. You may think that they're handling that okay, but because there's all these layers and layers of how they process things and how they bring it into their bodies, um, even I find a lot of professionals really do not have a clear understanding of that. I see it all the time in, in my children. And you really need to be aware of that so that you can then address it. You know, you need to recognize autism is an extraordinarily complex disorder. I think, as I say, even professionals sometimes forget just how complex it is. And because, you know, I'm so fascinated because I live so deeply submerged in my children's world for such a long time, I really got to understand that the whole idea of association. And it, it's really, if you don't address that and embrace that, you're, you're holding back on a whole bunch of work. But, you know, that could potentially be done with and for that child. Why are we so bent on fixing someone with autism? I think because it... It does scare people, you know, because the behaviors can be pretty severe, you know, temper tantrums, and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're fine one minute, one minute, and the next minute they're, you know, they're tossing their, their plates on the floor because they didn't, they couldn't handle the color or the texture of the food on their plate, whatever. You know, people are frightened by that. I think we also live in a society, you know, where you think we can just fix things. And, um, you know, there's been some pretty militant people in the news the last couple of years, you know, who have autism children and and because they sort of got on this bandwagon of nope you know I will not accept this we will we need to cure this no parent should have to go through this I think it's a little bit sad to me that you know we can't just embrace people and rather than wanting to fix them just say what is amazing about them what is it that they have to offer what can I do to make their life even better so that they can be more a part of our world and also to continue to emerge as a human being. You talk about submersion and you talk about deep submersion. What do the what do these uh, what does this mean? Um, submersion is a term that, that I use. Having two children with autism, I mean, I probably would have done the same with one, but with two it was that much more imperative because, you know, when you have two in one family, and of course we have two typical children too, 
um, the behaviors are that much more severe, and we needed to find answers. And, and also just, you know, my, my children, would, they wouldn't make eye contact with me. You know, we would have these incredible tem- temper tantrums. I needed to find a way to connect. And so basically, you know, I would just sort of push away the world and just take their lead. You know, if they were playing with a toy in a really odd, interesting way, I would get down on the floor and play with it that way. Or I would teach myself when we were out in, in a shopping mall, I had to be so submerged in the world that I would understand what things I needed to look for so that they could manage being there. And, you know, I do talk about it a lot in, in both of the books, especially the castle we called home, because there was also what I call deep submersion where, you know, where there would be times months at a time when I would have to just really submerge myself that much more deeply in the world. You know, my husband would be the one that would deal more with the the day-to-day things and, um, I had to just focus so much on the kids. You know, I didn't, I didn't read newspapers. I didn't uh, go out and hang out with my friends. You know, I just, I needed to just get things in a, a good place, you know, by understanding, by watching, by documenting. It was an incredibly fabulous place to be. I learned so much. I was able to help my children along so much. But, you know, I, it did alter who I was. I actually started to take on some of the characteristics that they had. I found making eye contact became very, very difficult for me. Um, a wall kind of came up between me and other moms just because I lived so differently. So it, you know, it had its drawbacks and I eventually had to, you know, train myself to, to not live in that world of submersion. But, um, it, it was a fascinating place to be and it, it was a place I needed to be so that I could see the world through their eyes. I could anticipate ways of helping them or shielding them and then continually helping them to evolve. Now, you're, the title of your book, The Castle We Called Home, uh, explain the title. Uh, why did you use the word castle and home in that same title? That, that was easy. The way that we came to live more and more, we started to have to sort of push away from family and friends because we needed to concentrate on our little family of six, of getting us to be able to live happily with the six of us. You know, our, our, the behaviors were so severe when the children were younger that, you know, we couldn't be out and about with friends. Uh, it was probably two years when my son was young, I couldn't take him to a shopping mall because the behaviors were so severe or he would go and actually grab other children or scratch their faces or even bite them. You know, I, I know it's, it's hard to hear this and to understand that, you know, it was a way that we could feel beauty. We could have this magic happen. You know, we, our home became a place that we could separate from the world, um, and at least be happy there. Um, but at the same time, you know, we could sometimes draw people in. Uh, you know, in, in the book, our home is a castle, really, it's, it's like a character. It's one of the ways I could tell our story, make it fascinating and interesting. But, you know, it, it really, it, it was how we lived. You know, sometimes we could kind of dash out of our castle and then come back. You know, it, it was a safe place. It was a necessary place. And it, it was our home. Simone, we have about a minute left. Uh, give us some closing thoughts about your book, The Castle We Called Home, Our Living, Breathing, and Emerging with Autism. Exactly that. You know, you live, you breathe, and you emerge. If you make this, if you decide, no, I'm going to grab this and just go with it, if you have a child with autism or if you're wanting to help someone, that's what you just keep doing. It's just you keep chipping away and emerging, emerging. Always know things will get better and better, and there 
is no end. You just keep working. Simone, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through uh, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, um, any place online at this moment. Well, thank you very much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. Simone Brenneman, the author of The Castle We Called Home, Our Living, Breathing, and Emerging with Autism. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you love finding fabulous deals and enjoy fashion and discussing celebrities? Then you've touched the right dial. Join the lovely ladies of Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole, Lakeisha, and Raquel, as they get your weekend started off right every week on Friday at 6 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. They'll be discussing great deals on hot products, affordable fashions, and the latest celebrity news. We know you'll feel good after listening to this show and eager to come back the following week to tune in and hear news, tips, and advice on how to save while shopping for amazing products. For more on your Celebrity Coupon hosts and amazing deals and downloads, check out their webpage at CelebrityCoupon.com. You never know who'll be joining them and what giveaways they'll have. It's talk radio like never before. Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole. Lakeisha and Raquel. Friday afternoons at 7, 6 central on toginet.com. It's time to get your boots on with the boot campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 central on toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, There Is No Energy Problem. And the author is Coleman Raphael. And Coleman joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Coleman. Hi there. Good to have you with us. Uh, This is going to be a very interesting discussion. You're going to take us to think about things that probably most haven't because we're always thinking about oil or solar uh, or solar panels or you know in a in a very limited way but you're going to take us to a much more expansive uh, thinking about the sun's energy but let me read this the purpose of this book is to demonstrate how our forward-looking and progressive nation can be free of dependence on limited energy sources such as foreign oil this book will define energy and describe its current uses and sources We will ultimately recognize how we can economically and efficiently use the sun's energy to supply all of our current and future needs. 
Well said. <laughs> well, you said it, and that is a very comprehensive statement, and the sun is there every day, and every day that we don't use it, it's a day we've wasted, isn't it? Well, fortunately, the sun is going to live for a very long time, so that yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is described as fairly early in the book when I have a diagram showing the sun and the energy that comes from it and goes back to it. Tell us about your professional background, Coleman. Well, I was a um, civil engineering student um, at CCNY. I got a... Uh, degree in uh, civil engineering and uh, the structural background that you get in such a course is applicable to airplane designs and wing designs and so my first job was as a, a structural engineer at Republic Aviation Corporation um, and uh, from there uh, I moved on uh, to um, Republic, uh, I ultimately became the head of the civil engineering activities and structural engineering, and then uh, moved on to, um, uh, as Republic was taken over by Fairchild Industries, uh, I became the uh, head of the Fairchild Engineer, Fairchild uh, Corporation, and um, it moved from, in the meantime, I got myself the uh, uh, master's degree and then the uh, PhD uh, and uh, Fairchild at Fairchild I headed up a fairly large department which then uh, led to Atlantic Research Corporation uh, the company that builds uh, rockets and space units and I became ultimately the uh, CEO and the chairman of the board of Atlantic Research um, and when I took that company over, uh, it had um, oh, approximately um, uh, several hundred employees, uh, I guess over a thousand employees, and uh, the sales were $17 million, and uh, about 14 years later, the sales were... Uh, like half a billion, and I was up to many uh, thousands of employees, many thousands of employees. So it was a very successful uh, activity. Uh, at the same time, I then became the uh, uh, dean of the business school at George Mason University and um, have uh, run a, a number, have designed a, a lot of uh, solid rockets and uh, spacecraft. And so there's been a a lot of interesting activity. <laughs> so why write the book? What do you see that we don't see that government doesn't see? Well, when people uh, talk about uh, energy, uh, there is um, no, no recognition of the fact that uh, we are very dependent upon oil, and uh, the oil is running out. Uh, in the book, there's uh, I have some sections on uh, what is going to uh, uh, happen to the energy sources that uh, we use right now. Um, for example, uh, we depend upon uh, 18, almost 90 percent of our energy uh, today that we use, consume in the United States. Uh, is come from fossil fuels. 
which means fossil fuels, by the way, are a form of solar energy. Um, the uh, energy from the sun comes down and strikes the uh, plants, uh, which have uh, uh, hydrogen and oxygen uh, in them, or and the carbon in them, and these plants store this energy, um, and eventually the plants die, uh, and it becomes part of the sediment, uh, which ultimately sinks uh, into the into the ground and becomes fluid in some cases, where it's called oil, becomes solid in some cases, where it's called coal, and becomes gas in some cases, where it's called natural gas. We also have shale and tar sands, and each of these produce a different material that can be burned to give us energy. Uh, so they're all called fossil fuels, but they're really a form of solar energy. And we are projecting at the present time, nobody's worried about it because the coal isn't going to run out for over 200 years. So nobody thinks very much about 200, 230 years from now when we'll be out of coal. Uh, but all the others are going to last less than 100 years. Um, and um, the uh, fact is that uh, since we need a lot of energy, uh, and I have a chapter on uh, the in my book, um, well, the first chapter discusses energy and all the forms. What do we mean by energy and electricity and solar, uh, not solar, uh, thermal and kinetic? Um, and uh, the second chapter talks about the world energy use. And we find that, uh, oh, 20, um, uh, I guess 20 out of 400, uh, uh, a lot of the energy goes into food, and so we talk about how energy is used in the world. Certainly a most important one is the energy that goes into food. Um, and then there's energy that goes into heat and warmth, and a lot more into transportation. And then the biggest amount is in industrial processes. We like to have electricity at night, and we like to have air conditioning, and we want uh, factories that are able to take uh, metal and uh, produce uh, pots and uh, pans. And uh, uh, all this energy is being used and is needed, and we needed sources for it. So we look at the sources, and we find, again, that 90% is fossil fuels, most of which are going to be gone. We say, well, but there is um, hydropower from the, the water flowing over dams, and there's wind energy. But all of those added together are less than 5%, or right around 5% of our energy sources. We talk about nuclear sources, which is another 5%, except that nuclear fission produces very dangerous uh, waste uh, and uh, uh, fusion is uh, more complicated, may not be achievable for a while, uh, but you add all of these up and you find that um, if we measure energy in terms of something I'm going to call quads, a quad being one quadrillion <laughs> BTUs, which is a measure of energy, it's a nice easy number to use because we can immediately say, oh, the United States uses 100 quads. The total world uses 450 quads. Um, do these 
what is it produced by the different energy sources, and I have a table, or, a, or I have one of the early um, illustrations in the book, I'm on page 17 of the book, is called the Earth's Energy Balance. It shows the solar energy that's coming in, gets absorbed by the Earth, moves out again, is reflected from clouds, uh, reflected from the Earth's surface, and then the energy that leaves the Earth when moisture evaporation occurs and convection occurs. And we see that that total amount of energy that comes in and goes out again is approximately five, a little over five million quads per year. And the total amount we're talking about that people need to survive in the United States is 100 out of that 5 million. And in the entire world, 450 out of the 5 million. So that we should be getting to understand solar energy, how it comes in, how it goes out. And we see that a little bit of application of logical technology and uh, we'd have no problem. And that's what I'm trying to say, that there is no problem. We don't have to worry like we do about the fact that, my goodness, we're going to run out of energy. We're not going to, we're never going to run out of energy. It's all there, isn't it? The sun is going to be there, like you say, uh, who knows how long, but well, millions of years or however you calculate that. But we haven't focused on solar energy. Why why haven't we focused? Well, when we... um, People haven't looked at the, uh, you have to apply some common sense, and very often we make decisions without very much common sense. Uh, We say, well, uh, uh, solar energy, well, if you... First, that this is solar energy. Fossil fuels are all forms of solar energy. Uh, so we, uh, the energy is uh, hitting the uh, uh, plants. It's growing the trees. We sometimes burn the wood in order to get some energy, uh, or we burn the plants. Um, the, uh, there are lobbies uh, which are run by the big oil companies, and that oil makes a lot of money for them. And therefore, we see a lot of emphasis that goes into oil and how we'll use it. And uh, let's, uh, the, the problems with the use of oil is that um, we're, um, we know of many oil fields, and we are using oil at a rate that is about the same, or it's a little bit more than the new oil that we're finding. So every year we find some new oil sources someplace in the world, and every year we're using oil at an increased rate, which is now greater than those sources. So Coleman, that oil Coleman, is going to be running out. Coleman, It'll run out in less than 100 years. And um, We have about two minutes, Coleman. Oh, okay. Well, then let me uh, let me talk about uh, a sensible policy. Thank you. Um, it would be uh, oil usage in the United States is going from twenty uh, uh, from forty quads right now to where it'll be five quads in fifty years from now. Um, if 
I look at my at the end of the book, there's a discussion of uh, the hydro, uh, of what we can do with solar energy. We can build uh, dishes and troughs, and uh, which will where the uh, and put them into desert areas. Um, uh, where they will reflect the solar energy and uh, we will capture it. And then we can use it in many different ways. We can use it in hydrogen. We can use it in lots of different ways to produce electricity. The fact is that the um, solar U.S. land area has about 3.6 million square miles in the United States. If you take 3% of the land area just of the deserts, it would be equal to 20,000 square miles. And with 20,000 square miles, it will give us all the energy we need for everything we want to do. And somebody says, well, if you capture the energy, it means you have to build big dishes and you have to build troughs, and that's going to be expensive. But the fact is that the expense is less than 10 times what we pay now each year. So that if we were willing to put a, uh, an investment of 10 times our current, exp our annual expenses into a solar system, at the end of, the, and, and the government permits us to charge no more than we're charged paying right now, within 10 years it would be paid all off, and then from then on the energy is free. And no, we haven't concentrated on that, but we should be concentrating on getting economists and sensible engineers to look at and realize that making the investment and getting the uh, governmental support and the economic support on the investment um, would enable us to um, – we need a public policy which would enable us to – guarantee that our energy sources forever after are much more than we need. What we really need is a public policy, and I have to write a letter to the president telling him about it. Well, it sounds like you do, Coleman. Uh, you certainly have the background. You certainly uh, thought a lot about this. And, and like you say, your book is filled with not only comprehensive information, but research and data and uh, we appreciate you giving us this uh, very different view of our energy problem. And you have the energy solution. And, boy, we're not hearing that from, I don't think, anyone. Uh, just so everyone knows, the title of the book, There Is No Energy Problem, Coleman Raphael. Coleman, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, the, uh, the book can be sold. Uh, right now you can find the book at uh, Amazon at um, uh, the uh, Barnes & Noble, etc. So um, the book is available there. It has not been printed in the kind of quantity yet that I expect that it's going to get. But right now, uh, one can get it from uh, Author House or from uh, these book salesmen. And we're going to be, I'm going to be devoting a lot of time now to talking to uh, people who uh, sell books and uh, the book companies. But Amazon does have it available, and so does Barnes & Noble. And I've looked at a couple of others, and they are going to be having it soon. It's over the next few weeks. It's going to, the book is available in a hardcover uh, as well as a softcover. And uh, uh, 
I think that uh, uh, I'm going to have to be devoting some time now to publicizing and uh, uh, the book and making uh, making them aware. Thank you, Coleman, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about something that I think is very important to all of us. <laughs> You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Truth About Tummy Time, A Parent's Guide to SIDS, The Back to Sleep Program, Car Seats, and More. And the author is Stephanie J. Pruitt, and Stephanie joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm going to read a few things you've written about your book so everyone understands the focus. Obviously, the title uh, gives uh, an, an overall view of, of the focus of the book. But here's what you say. What you know could save your baby's life. With the great fear of sudden infant death syndrome, parents today want and need an easy-to-read, concise guide to navigate the maze of information surrounding SIDS and the Back to Sleep program. The biggest question we all have is, what is best for my baby? Written by pediatric physical therapist and mother of three, the truth about tummy time is that guide. Get the answers you need while learning the best way to care for your infant with confidence. And that's the key word here, isn't it? Confidence. Absolutely. Stephanie, tell us about your background and then why you decided to publish this book. Well, I guess first and foremost, um, my 
biggest source of experience is I have three children of my own. So learning from your children, as every parent knows, is a is quite a ramp up process. You don't you have to learn on the job when you're a parent. Um, also, I am a pediatric physical therapist. I specialize in uh, peds, and I have for the last ten years. Which that combination of um, motherhood and pediatric professional or profession um, has kind of led to the, this whole process. Having it all led, leading to this process, um, I was working and noticing a trend. All the parents coming in were all having the exact same question about what was best for their baby. Is it okay for me to put my baby on the stomach? What about SIDS? What about the back to sleep program? What about this? And I found myself dispensing the same professional advice over and over again to every parent that came in. And it occurred to me that if everybody who's coming to see me has the same question, then I wondered how many people all over the country were having the same question. So I started doing research for the book, and I found a lot of really interesting facts and a lot of things that were missed with the whole Back to Sleep campaign that were actually having a huge impact on the way people were taking care of their children. So, um, therefore, I wrote the book and uh, hope that it's going to be really helpful to parents all over the country. Well, let's start with a very basic question for those who may not know enough about this but may be facing it as a new parent or or uh, a soon-to-be parent. What exactly is SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome? SIDS um, is, by definition, unknown. Whatever causes SIDS is an unknown factor. Um, and so... I think that is what generates the most fear for people is it's an unknown thing. So for, for many, it appears to be like this thief in the night that's going to come and take their babies away because it is an unknown thing. We're all afraid of the unknown. Um, but SIDS actually is uh, kind of the term that they give a baby when they have done everything else they possibly can to determine the cause of death and still can't find something. So SIDS has become more uh, clearly defined by the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, only recently. Before, it was everybody was being diagnosed with SIDS when they didn't know, and, but there was no formalized process for making that diagnosis. So now three things, three requirements have to be covered in order to receive that diagnosis. First of all, um, the baby has to have a full autopsy. That includes a crime scene investigation or a death scene investigation, not that it's a crime, but the, the a forensic specialist who's trained in the area has to be dispatched to the home to look at the, the bedroom or wherever the baby was last found to decide what exactly the, um, the home life situation was. So the autopsy has to be determined, the uh, death scene has to be re reviewed, and then the third part of it is a full review of the baby's medical history and the family's medical history has to be done. So after all three of those things have been reviewed and, and covered, only then, if they still do not know the cause of death, is the baby given the diagnosis of SIDS. Now this Back to Sleep program, uh, I've raised uh, uh, seven children back oh, in wow. the <laughs> 70s and 80s. Our kids never slept on their backs. They were always on their stomachs. Exactly. And when I asked, when I was writing the book, the first thing I did was I called my mother and I said, hey, you know, we were raised back in the 70s. 
what, how did you put us down to sleep? And she said that back in the 70s they were told to only place your baby on their sides just in case they spit up. They wouldn't aspirate or, you know, choke on their, their spit up. And then I called my grandmother, who raised her babies in the 40s and the 50s, and asked her the same question. And she said that she always placed her five children um, in different positions every time she laid them down because the doctors told them at the time that would make sure that their heads would stay round. So they would rotate their positions every time, stomach, back, side, and, and the other side, and uh, until the baby was able to move around on their own, and then they would just let them slept in whatever position they got into. So that this the Back to Sleep campaign has completely changed the way that we have done things with the infants. So now it's exclusively put your babies on the back no matter what. Now, that comes from the American Academy of Pediatrics? Yes. The American Academy of Pediatrics uh, started the whole Back to Sleep campaign in conjunction um, with the National Institute of Health, and uh, several other people backed up the program in an effort to reduce the rate of SIDS. Okay, now the big question. Is it okay to put a child on his stomach or her stomach when they go to sleep? In my personal opinion, I have no problem with it. And what I tell my parents, the, the parents of the patients who come in to see me every day, if you do not feel comfortable letting your baby sleep on the stomach at night, then only allow them to do it during the day in a safe sleeping environment so that you can continually check on your child and make sure that they're okay. So it's really a parent's comfort level at this point of what they feel most comfortable with. As a mother of three, I let my baby sleep on their stomachs. And uh, as a professional, I see how important it is for the development of the child to be to have tummy time or to be on their stomach. Um, you can't expect a child to develop normally or on time or on target if they are exclusively placed in one position all the time. Why is that? Well, think of the muscles themselves. If you are always in one position... 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're not going to develop the muscles of your back and of your neck and of, you know, the backs of your arms. All those muscles are not going to be developed like they're supposed to as, you, as they would if you're laying on your stomach. So how much tummy time, what would you say is best for the baby? You can never give a child, enough, you know, too much opportunity to develop balanced muscle strength. So I don't put a label or a limit on, you know, you have to have five minutes of tummy time a day or 20 minutes of tummy time a day. Now, if you're talking about an exercise program for an adult person and they say, yeah, I do an, uh, you know, an hour of cardio every day and lift weights for this long, that's a different story. But when you're talking about a developing infant who is learning all this stuff for the first time, who's generating muscle strength, you cannot give too much opportunity for development in any one position. Our homes seem to be filled with bouncers, with swings, and, of course, then there's the mandatory car seat, which often comes out of the car, comes into the house, and kids are sleeping in it. Right, the bane of my existence. I do not like car seats at all. <laughs> <laughs> I have parents every single day. I mean, if you go to the mall, you go anywhere, infants are exclusively in car seats. 
they're not being held very much anymore. They're not being put in strollers and pushed around. They're being stuck in car seats, and they live there. It's like their little portable, you know, device where they they live in the car seat. And now the the safety and the technology that's come out, you clip it out of the, you know, you put the baby in the car seat, you clip it into the car, you take the baby somewhere, you unclip it from the car, you clip it into the stroller, and then, you know, repeat the same process to go home. And the baby has not moved one time or used one muscle during that whole process because they've been stuck in the car seat the whole time. You can't you can't expect good results with development and milestone acquisition if you can find children. It just it can't happen if you're not given the opportunity to move. Babies can't develop if they're confined. And of course, uh, a few decades ago, car seats weren't uh, mandatory and uh, were rarely used. They kids were buckled in, or sometimes they weren't buckled in at all. Well, I remember our first car, we didn't even have seatbelts in the car, so <laughs> I guess it, I'm right, dating myself, right. aren't I? <laughs> well, I can remember traveling across the country and my two youngest playing in the, we had a little hatchback car, and they played the whole time in the back of the, of the car. I remember that. We had a station wagon, and yeah. we, we laid in the back, sure. and we had a great a grand You know, and that kept them uh, entertained, and they Absolutely. were crawling around and, you know, coloring and doing all the things that kids do. Absolutely. You know, car seats, are they're for the car. You leave them in the car, you travel with them to keep the children safe while you're in while sure. you're in transport, and then you get the baby out of them. The babies do not need to spend their time in car seats. They need to be out, they need to be held, they need to be moving around and exploring their environment. So keep the car seats in the car. So That's what where do they you stay. What do you consider a safe sleep environment? What is that? A safe sleeping environment, with all the research that I have done, everything points to basically the same couple factors. The safest place for a baby to sleep is alone, in a crib or in a pack-and-play or a bassinet, whatever, on a firm mattress that's fit for whatever device it is, whether it's the crib or bassinet. So a a well-fitted mattress alone in a crib and uh, on a firm surface. You want to keep all soft, plush, you know, fluffy things out of the crib, like stuffed animals and really thick, heavy blankets. Uh, you want to keep all, um, you want to keep other children out of the same sleeping area. You want to um, make sure, just basically, that there is nothing that that can endanger the child in the sleeping area. Especially once they get to about three or four months old and they're rolling around, you want to make sure that there's nothing soft. No eggshell, foam mattresses, no wedges, nothing that's, that's plushy that the baby can, you know, potentially smother with. Those are ba- the basic things. You know, keep all soft stuff out, put them on a firm surface, and let them sleep by themselves in whatever sleeping environment they're in. Since 1994, then, what are the more common infant diagnoses? Well, what's happening since the Back to Sleep program and babies are laying flat on their back all the time, um, I have seen a huge increase in babies who are diagnosed with shortened neck muscles and with flat spots on their head. That's becoming a, a kind of an epidemic. Um, the shortened neck muscles, the fancy medical term for that is torticollis, and it has increased by 84% since the Back to Sleep campaign started. Um, plagiocephaly is the medical term for flattened spots on the head, and that's increased by 48% since the Back to Sleep campaign has started. 
So along with that, you can imagine that if you're laying flat on your back all the time, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, um, if you're not developing balanced muscle strength, you're going to see more developmental delay. And that's exactly what I'm seeing clinically is children are, are much more behind and they're not progressing through the milestones like they used to when we were allowed just to move around freely. So um, there is a very big increase in the number of children that are developmentally delayed uh, to the point where it's unusual now for a child to be sitting up by itself by six months. When back, you know, it, when we were raised, we were, you know, all over the place by that point. Mm. So confinement and not giving the children opportunity for development is causing developmental delay. So those are the three biggies, torticollis, plagiocephaly, and developmental delay. And I spend every day, um, you know, at trying to send parents in the right direction and kind of reverse that trend. And, and also that's why I wrote the book is to, there's got to be a way to keep children safe and to encourage them to develop like they're supposed to at the same time. And what you're doing, it seems to me, uh, creating an awareness that uh, just because someone says that you have to uh, have your child sleep on its back all the time doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be that way all the time. I mean, there are other alternatives that are safe. Right. But, and that's unfortunately what people hear. Yes. Is that this, the, it was a back-to-sleep recommendation, but people are, what I think they have heard is only place your baby on your back exclusively. Right. And so that translates to a lot of people that they never, ever place their babies on their stomach because they're afraid. They don't know why they're afraid. They're just afraid that something's going to happen, and, you know, I can't, I can't ever do that. And the statistics say that 25% of parents never have placed their child on the stomach, ever. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty significant amount, and I'm seeing all of them in my clinic. <laughs> so. Well, and I can remember a daughter telling us as grandparents when they went out and we were babysitting, make sure you put so-and-so to sleep on his back. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, we were kind of ordered. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right, and, and I actually have a friend who is a labor and delivery nurse, and she came to me in a tirade at one point and said they are now making us have the new parents sign a waiver or sign an agreement that they will put their babies on their backs. So hmm. you're, now they're leaving the hospital having to sign forms to say, yes, I agree to do this. Wow. So it's, it's, um, the pendulum is definitely swinging way out into left field, right. and we need to pull it back into the center again for the benefit of our children. Well, get, you know, there's obviously uh, some benefits to making sure that you're aware of the possibility of this uh, problem that could occur, obviously. Uh, right. And, but at the same time, what I hear you saying is let's be wise about this. Let's be smart about it. Let's understand the growth patterns of a child and, and serve the needs of the child not only asleep but awake as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you cannot dramatically change the way we care for infants and not expect some repercussions somewhere else. I'm all about being safe. I'm all about reducing the SIDS rate. I'm all about... You know, you know, taking care of infants and, and ensuring that they survive the first year. I'm 100 percent, you know, pro-safe taking care of children, but we also have to be reasonable about it as well. The title of the book, The Truth About Tummy Time, 
A Parent's Guide to SIDS, the Back to Sleep Program, Car Seats, and more. And the author is Stephanie J. Pruitt. Stephanie, tell us how to get your book. AboutTummyTime.com. It'll give you all the information you need. AboutTummyTime.com. Sounds great. Well, Stephanie, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.